Maya, thanks for joining us. I'm sure. Happy to be here. Why don't we start with your background? You know, where are you from? Uh, so the arc of your career and what you're doing now. Okay, well, it all started here in Washington, D.C. Never thought I'd end up here, but I'm a, I'm a actually a third generation native Washingtonian, um, but never particularly cared for politics. So grew up and figured I was going to go do some kind of a research job, which I did. I had a really great first job working at the Brookings Institution doing research on the banking sector and income inequality and mobility. From there, I went and worked on Wall Street for a couple of years. Um, great experience, not a great passion for me. I think those first jobs are as helpful figuring out what you do love to do as much as what you don't really want to do. Uh, from there, I took a brief adventure. I call it my first midlife crisis, where I just gave away everything I had in New York, left my furniture, subletted my apartment, went out to China, lived there for about half a year, traveled, made a made a mini series that was the closest I came came to being an actress um, in China, and. Um, tried to learn the language, that's a difficult language to learn. Um, and then I came back and I went to graduate school and I studied fiscal policy, it's something I'd become really interested in both at the think tank and on Wall Street. And I was increasingly concerned about why this country borrows so much money, not for economic reasons, which often can be justified, but that we do so for political reasons. And the more I became concerned, the more I read about it, the more concerned I became about it. And it was really a passion of mine I guess because it felt like a system that wasn't working. Like you need to sit up your set up your structures, whether they're political or economic, in a way that makes sense or sustainable, lead to good outcomes, include people in the process. And there was just so many ways I saw it not working, in particular the outcome. And so in graduate school, my dream was to go start a bipartisan group that would work on this issue, bipartisan, because I think that's the only way you get things done because I don't really understand why we do everything in a partisan manner in the first place. Um, and I'm a diehard political independent. I have no interest in being on, on one camp or the other. And then it turns out there was an amazing group that had already been built that did this called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And they offered me a job 17, 18 years ago um, and turned out to be my dream job. And that's what I've been up to ever since working at this organization. Great team of people and we're really focused on how you put forth sustainable um, fiscal policies that focus on the long run that aren't that aren't about political objectives. And more recently, we've also created another group called Fix Us, which is looking at this moment and why as a country we're so polarized and divided because that state of play makes it impossible to resolve any of the fiscal issues that are our immediate mission to be working on. Well, great. Well, let's start in on you know the area that you are most passionate about, which is the budget. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the current, the, the, you know, the, the budgeting in the U.S. Congress evolved over time and, you know, how it's changed from the beginning? Well, today's budget structure is really a result of, uh, of budget process reforms that were created in the early 1970s. And I'll tell you one observation about budget rules, process reforms, restrictions. They're always put in place. Congress puts them in place to try to help rein them in. And then it becomes the process of the years of unraveling those reforms. And that's what's happened, where really, if you look at how we budget today, um, the simplest description is we don't. There is more often not an actual budget in place than there is, which is shocking and should appall everyone that we run the biggest economic entity in the world without a budget so often. 
The deadlines aren't taken seriously. The accountability is basically nothing. Uh, I don't even know how many people would know this, but the two congressional budgets, the House and Senate budget, should have already put forth their budgets this year. They should be they should be finished with this process, and it hasn't even begun. And basically, nobody even notices. I'm not sure how many members of Congress know that the heads of the budget committees just completely fell down on the job and, and didn't put out what they needed to. And this happens more and more routinely. So um, in addition to those deadlines and accountability and all those things not happening, what also happens is there's no real thoughtful discussion that goes into what should the US budget look like? What are our national objectives? What are the best ways we think we should achieve them? And how are we going to pay for those things? But instead, it's much more of a process of budgeting has become kind of uh, statements, political statements for the two parties. And then it's not taken seriously as the first and most important step of figuring out what other policies we should enact. So um, in that process that started in the 1970s that still guides us today, there's now widespread support, understanding, belief that we really need to overhaul the project because the, the process in that it has probably outlived its usefulness. If you have members of Congress who are no longer following the rules and don't even feel constrained by them um, or that they have to pay attention, it clearly isn't doing what it's meant to do. So there's a lot of interest and actually bipartisan interest in fixing the budget process these days. That's something um, I could see actually working in a world where it's hard to get a lot of these things to work. I think there might be some interest in a chance of getting some improvements done there. So, but in terms of the, the history of the budgeting process, you know, it's my understanding that pretty much the U.S. ran a uh, more of a break-even uh, neutral budget for most of its history up until the 20s. And then after the 20s, it started to run chronic deficits. Obviously, there are short-term deficits around short-term issues around various national emergencies. But after the 20s, that started to be more chronic in nature. Uh, and then obviously it got worse to the point where they, in all those budgets were bottom up really, where Congress was just passing appropriations and they happened to work out to about break even. Um, whereas the, you know, this chronic deficit crapped up and then that created a system where there needed to be a top down budget that was promulgated from the leadership. So I'm wondering if you have any perspective on that evolution, why that happened and what was there in the early days that led to balanced budgets and later on sort of eroded into chronic deficits or chronic chronic debt, basically? Yeah, so that's that's the question about um, kind of the fiscal responsibility and the trajectory that that's been on. And it's true that in our nation's history, we used to be much more frugal and careful about when we would borrow and for what we would borrow. And in the past, way past, the main purpose of budget deficits were when there were huge wars, world wars or other wars, or huge national emergencies. Um, and that when there's a recession, there's actually a reason to borrow to help fill in the gap in your economy. And we did that more where the kinds of thinking of, oh, you should balance your budget over a business cycle, which tends to be about 10 years. That was more of a guiding principle. And then slowly, we've seen an erosion in that slowly, and then more recently, quickly, we've seen an erosion in that. And the thing I believe it correlates the most with is the change in the political polarization, where it used to be more, um, you can put all the budget rules you want in place, but a lot of this has to do with norms. And it used to be more that the norms were that the two parties would kind of fight things out, disagree about their priorities, but know that they had to get to yes somehow. And they'd come, whether it was behind closed doors or however they would get it done, 
agree on some compromises. And for the most part, when the economy was strong, those compromises involved paying for the things that we wanted to do and making sure that we weren't borrowing every year and running big structural deficits. That has changed, I think, due in large part to the fact that our political polarization has changed so much. Compromise, which was absolutely the norm, has turned into a bad word in some extremes of both parties. Um, the guiding principle that you should put in place a budget before you put in place other policies has been trampled over routinely. And now you see, even to generalize, Republicans who were more in favor of cutting spending and Democrats who are more in favor of raising taxes, again, to generalize, um, neither of those parties actually want to do those things all that much. Republicans, if you look at the past uh, Republican president, President Trump and the party, that president actually ran on, I'm going to cut your taxes, raise your spending, and I promise not to fix Social Security and Medicare. Nothing about small government or fiscal responsibility on the spending side there. And a lot of the party went along with that. And Democrats who uh, have become more focused on raising taxes, yes, but only on a very small share of the, pu the public. Now you hear, you know, raising taxes on millionaires and billionaires or corporations a lot have really ignored the fact that those numbers are completely at odds with the kinds of spending policies they're talking about. There really isn't enough money at just high income earners to pay for the huge expansion of government that they're talking about. So where both parties used to disagree on how you'd pay for things, they tended to think that we should. Instead, now what we've heard is sort of every made up belief um, dressed up as a theory that either tax cuts will pay for themselves or don't worry about it, we can just print more money, that won't be a problem at all, to justify the lack of fiscal responsibility, even when the economy is strong. And so just to close out, so three years before we were hit by the global pandemic when the economy was strong, and we would normally have been running at least small deficits, preferably budget surpluses. Instead, we went ahead and, and recklessly borrowed $4.7 trillion with no economic justification whatsoever. The only reason being, oh, we wanna do a lot of things and we don't wanna pay for them. And so there has, it has been the erosion of the budget process and the norms and the willingness to compromise that has brought us to this point. When you talk about the norms, you know, it's, it's this cultural concept that, you know, in the past, you know, there was a desire to do a balanced budget and now there's, it's almost like there's not a desire to get there. Um, on, the individual member level and also as an aggregate, the institution level, you're thinking that's due to polarization versus kind of a general cultural shift towards debt being okay. Is that your thinking? No, that's a great point. I actually think that the cultural shift is a huge piece of this also. And a lot of that has come from changes in our financial markets. It used to be that debt wasn't nearly as big a part of our overall economy. And then with the introductions of credit cards and new forms of borrowing and the belief over and all that at kind of the individual level, it's it's much less of a, a cultural issue that you should save up all your money and thrift is good um, and don't buy something so you can afford to pay for it. That has been replaced. Um, again, credit, credit is at the center of that. And um, I think that cultural component is a huge part of it, um, but there's still always should and in most places is the difference of it's very different to borrow for a college education 
than it is for a huge amount of consumption, whether it's a swimming pool, a spending spree, a fancy boat, things that, that aren't productive investments. And we have the same distinction kind of run over in the government, which is there's a lot of arguments for why it might make sense to borrow for productive investments, but the bulk of the country's budget is all on consumption. And really there's no justification for borrowing for consumption, except when you're in a recession, other than I don't wanna pay for it, I'd really have somebody else do it. And so I, yes, I think that cultural shift along with the polarization is hugely at the center of these changes. Let's go a little bit deeper into you know, this framework you just mentioned uh, about what you spend money on and when you come to the philosophy of the budget, right? Because you the problem with the US budget, it seems to me, is that there's so many uses of the budget, right? There's, there's a budget that in theory is used for redistribution, right? Tax some, give to others, borrow from the future, give to the current, right? These are just mechanisms of redistribution. Whereas there are other kinds of more traditional kind of business investments like ROI, you build a roads, you build, you know, you invest in healthcare that might have longer term return on investment, right? So this is like a different category of budget. Then there's other kinds of budgets like how much you wanna pay on the legislature um, or how much do you wanna pay for courts? Uh, you know, and then there, there are these insurance schemes. So when you think about the budget in your mind, and maybe even in the Congress's mind, what's the philosophy or what's the framework that you're using to think about the budget and what categories there are in it? Well, I think the really interesting thing about a diverse uh, democracy as we have is that there's lots of different frameworks. Many people have entirely different frameworks for how they think about the budget. And the great thing is that's okay. In fact, I think that's terrific. And that richness of our democracy is what makes us potentially so strong. The problem is when the system breaks down and doesn't push us to work through those differences. So there's certainly some people who look at the main role of the federal government, the budget to be providing public goods. Those that are things that are non-divisible, non-rival, and we can't provide for ourselves. Good examples of that would be national security or um, climate control regulations on things like climate that we can't each do on our own, that you need some communal aspect to. Then there are plenty of other objectives. And by the way, people are going to disagree on what national security objectives look like and how big the defense budget should be to achieve that. Then there are lots of other goals. So there's social objectives. Like you said, redistribution is a hugely divisive um, issue where some people think there should be much more and some people think there shouldn't be. Um, again, people are right to all of their different opinions. But what we should be able to do is clearly think about what the different policies, how to evaluate them on that. So whether it's taxing or spending, who you're taxing from, who you're spending on, is that consistent with your goals and be able to evaluate, analyze and critically compromise on that. And then there's lots of differences on the budget. Should it be the immediate consumption issues, kind of a welfare budget and welfare doesn't mean targeted. It could mean everybody, but helping people today or should the budget be focused on making long-term sustainable investments? Um, and in that one, I'll weigh in on, I think there's no healthy budget that doesn't focus the long-term health of a country by looking at how much it's putting into investing in human capital, infrastructure, 
research and development, I don't think a budget that ignores those factors can be a really healthy, sustainable one. So in addition to not borrowing excessively, I think making sure you allocate your resources in a way where investment gets a large part of that pie is pretty important for the strength of a country. And I would flag that as one of the weaknesses of the past decades that we've been over consuming and under investment and they're investing at the federal budget level. For that, I wonder what's your, what's your benchmark for that kind of investment? Um, you know, for instance, you know, you think about the, the private sector where you have companies that are, um, you know, that are investing in R&D, for instance, and a percentage of their revenue or a percentage of their uh, profits go into this long-term investment, uh, you know, bucket. Um, what do you think of in terms of when, when the U.S. as a whole is investing, how does it benchmark that? that investment in the future? Well, I don't think you think about it in a way that's similar to the private sector really at all. I think you try to achieve a number of goals and those goals would be kind of what I just mentioned there, but it's national security, keeping the country safe and strong, who you wanna help. There's lots of different groups of people that you wanna help and different people wanna help in different ways, who you wanna help and your evaluation of how much you should be focusing on the immediate versus the long-term. And you then have to balance all of those goals. So there are a lot of investments where the return would be lower than other investments that I would still say, oh, that's the right thing to do, either for people you want to help today or for the future. So it just, I think uh, it is much less about laying out what the right answer is and making sure you're being rigorous about thinking about what those objectives are and then how you would deal with the inherent trade-offs that are there at every step of the way of government policy and fiscal policy in particular. And is that done, you know, from a leadership level and then a budget is allocated to the committees and then they fill it up with kind of bottom up? That's not done. What I just discussed is not how the budget process occurs at all. It's done that way at public policy schools, <laughs> which I went to one where you sit around and you think through that exercise and you realize how beneficial it would be for us if we did. But that's not how the budget committees operate at all. And I think that's a flaw of political leadership and leadership of the committees right now, um, and the fact that members of Congress don't demand it. I'll give you an example. I think every single member of Congress should actually know what a budget they support looks like, what their fiscal goal is, how they think the pie, how much we should be spending, and how they think that pie should be allocated. And I bet you if you gave them a quiz, 90% uh, of them wouldn't even know the answer to how that budget is allocated right now, the most basic things. We actually have a bunch of budget tools we've just released, um, budgeting for the future, that has a budget quiz and a place where you can look at what your budget personality is. And I think I think we'll share them with a lot of members, members of Congress because they're meant to be both educational, but also to crowdsource what people think we should be doing. How much should we be allocating to today's seniors versus adults versus children, for instance? We have a, a whole tool there called Boomers versus Zoomers that looks at that and gives people a chance to weigh in but my guess is a lot of people, including members of Congress, would be very surprised to know what those current allocations are. I think those kinds of tools are fantastic, and I, I did look at those, and uh, it, it's it bring it's a sobering uh, check on your expectations to go in there and and try to fiddle around and find a way to make find a balance because it's very difficult. You have to do a lot of cutting to get there. Mm -hmm. So today, you say it's not how it works. How does it work today? Well, 
the world has changed dramatically in the past decades. We know that, and the pace of change is growing. But the budget doesn't change that much. We have two thirds of the budget, which is on automatic pilot. It doesn't even go through an annual appropriations process where Congress decides how much is spent on that. And those are things like Social Security, Medicare, farm payments, pensions, all sorts of things that veterans benefits that don't get the kind of oversight that they should. And if they did, in fact, we would not let Social Security and Medicare be hurtling towards insolvency as both of those programs are. We have annual reports from their trustees who every year say, well, these trust funds are completely imbalanced and they're going to run out of resources to pay full benefits if we don't do something. Congress barely yawns at that, um, barely pays any attention. And so those programs continue every year without any oversight or changes, leaving the people who depend on them quite vulnerable. That I think is really dangerous. Then we have one third of the budget that goes through the appropriations process. About half of that is defense and half of that is other programs, energy, education, the environment, um, the courts. And that appropriations process, it's a bit of a mess as well because they can never agree. They never get the appropriations done. We have these ridiculous showdowns. Are we gonna actually shut the government down or not because we can't agree on funding? And sometimes they do. One thing we should put in place is an automatic CR so that you have automatic continuation of funding. There's lots of different forms of how that could work. So we don't shut down the government. I mean, that's pretty juvenile from anybody else's perspective. Nobody has a fight at work and then shuts down the entire office over it, but our Congress does. But they go through the appropriations process. And the issue there is, as well, there's just not sufficient oversight. They don't start with the, what should our budgetary objective be? What are the different ways that we could achieve that? And then how are we gonna compromise on the fact that we have some different preferences? In fact, basically they start with everything that was funded last year, and we're just gonna plus it up by, you know, a lower amount if it's Republicans, a bigger amount if it's Democrats. Again, to generalize, that doesn't always apply. Defense is different for different people, but I would be, hard pressed to find a member of Congress who actually knows kind of the micro of where all those dollars are spent, thereby keeping them from being able to do a really good evaluation of, is that where it should be spent? And I think the biggest, the biggest illustration of this is how much our world has changed and how our budget hasn't changed to match it. If you look at the big challenges we have right now in the world, we'll all disagree, but I happen to think they're cybersecurity, and the changing nature of work from technology and therefore the need for a new social contract to ensure people against the risks of this century instead of last century. Other people might have different preferences, but I'll tell you what, the discussion about what those changes are and how they should change our policies is really not going on in Congress to the extent that it should be. So instead, the budget is really anchored in what it was last year, which means what it was last 10 years, which means 50 years ago, a time when the budget was the needs of the budget were completely different, and yet the budget hasn't changed that much, with the one exception that those programs on automatic pilot that are fueled by formulas um, reflect growing healthcare costs and the aging of the population. So those programs are getting a much, much larger piece of the pie, and what's shrinking is the public investments that we have not been pursuing as much in recent decades. So... I mean, you've thought about this all the time. You have a, an institute dedicated to this subject. What's the way to fix it? Wow. Um, it starts with 
It starts with having an actual fiscal metric. So there's two issues, our fiscal recklessness and our allocation of resources. On the fiscal front, we need to have a fiscal metric where we don't allow Congress to borrow as much as it wants with no constraint every year. And that metric should probably be bringing our debt relative to our economy gradually down to, towards traditional levels. Right now we have record level of debt to GDP. The only time it's been this high was right after World War II and that was a very different time. We just fought a world war and we quickly brought the debt back down. Right now the debt share to GDP is expected to grow over decades indefinitely. So you wanna put out, oh, instead of going up nonstop, we should bring a gradual change in and bring that debt back down to historical levels or something close to it. Historical is 40% of GDP. We're probably not gonna get there anytime soon, but at least in that direction. In order to do that, just by the way, you have to look at every area of the budget. You have to fix those trust fund programs. You have to raise more revenues and a significant amount more. You have to reduce spending, put back spending caps in, raise the retirement age for a lot of our programs. You've got to do it all because we're in that big a hole. So I would start with a fiscal metric and a budget process that requires that you meet it, gradually improving every year with exceptions for emergencies and recessions. On the question of how we allocate, I think we have to look at how we evaluate the returns you're going to get on different programs and at least make that more transparent. Because I don't think anybody who's thinking about it would say, Here's the ratio we should be spending this country. $6 per senior on every one for, for kids under 18. Yet that's what we're doing. So I think maybe a better job of transparency in the budget and letting people weigh in on what the national priorities are, but not crowdsourcing completely. I mean, I think that you want transparency to kind of avoid the problem of captured interests having such a claim on the budget or the past having such a claim. But at the same time, there are things that you need to do for the country that people might not want to invest in enough. A lot of the kind of bureaucratic important things from courts to the Congressional Budget Office need funding, even though they might not be at the top of everybody's list. So a balance where our lawmakers are both representative and serving as good stewards and fiduciaries of the nation's interests. Mm -hmm.